This is a bit of a different kind of sermon for me. Um, just to remind you, we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and in uh, some number of weeks back, we completed our study in the first 14 verses of chapter 5 of Ephesians, where Paul there spoke about the new sexual ethic for those who were once darkness but are now children of light and are to walk in the light. And what does that all mean? And so uh, we finished that section, but I really felt compelled deep within me to, to not leave it there, but to, but to try to apply it in some areas that I thought were really necessary uh, in the day and age in which we, leave, we live. And so three sermons on modesty, and you're probably thinking, okay, wow, three sermons on modesty. Yeah, three sermons on, on modesty. And I don't think we exhausted that topic, by the way, but I think we at least gave some food for thought. And I told you at that time that the other area that I really believed we needed to talk about was the area of entertainment. And boy, pick two topics that are bound to cause people to go, (gasps) right? Modesty and entertainment. We hold these things so near and dear. But I want to talk to you about entertainment this morning, and it is a long sermon. And it's a different kind of sermon because it's what I call an applicational sermon. It's an applicational sermon. It, It presupposes all that we have taught previously out of Ephesians 5. And if you're with us this morning for the first time, I apologize in that sense that you haven't had the benefit of all of that prior teaching, but, but there's still profit here uh, for you if you will listen and, uh, and the Spirit of God will apply uh, for you as well. So I've entitled this uh, sermon, Entertainment, a Dangerous Delight. Entertainment, a Dangerous Delight. And we are living, um, beloved, in an, a world of entertainment. We are living in, in a world of entertainment. And, and probably there is, is nothing that illustrates that reality more than the prominent place the big screen TV has in virtually every single home. It is, it is that one device that we all sort of share in common, and we have placed it in a place of prominence within our homes. If I mention family time, most people have a conception in their mind of family time as basically gathered around the big screen and to watch some favorite TV program, stream some sort of a movie, or perhaps engage in some sort of computer game play. This is often what people conceive of when we talk about family time. You couple that with, with the, the explosive growth and, and ubiquitous presence of the smartphone and the, the wireless connectivity everywhere we go, and the, the explosion of, of video gaming, and, and I think the transformation of America to an entertainment culture is complete. The transformation has been completed. I got a lot I want to talk to you about this morning, and, and much of what I say will be focused on TVs and movies, but it, the, it certainly has application in the area of of video or, or computer gaming, video gaming, whatever you call that stuff. And um, yeah, I've already tipped my hand, didn't I? Um, comic books, pulp novels, music, 
and even live shows and the theater. Okay, I think I've rounded up all the usual suspects. Okay, the entertainment culture. What I want to do with you in this introduction, and this is a long introduction, a very long introduction, but I want to ask and answer some questions along the way here and kind of set our minds to this topic before us. So let me just begin with this. How much money do you think is spent on entertainment in this country? How much money are we spending on entertainment? Well, I did a little bit of, of internet searching, and the, the best numbers I could find uh, go back to the year 2000. So that's coming up almost two decades ago. And so what I'm about to share with you, I, I'm positive, has got to be worse than what, it, than what it was back then. But in the year 2000, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics published a pretty comprehensive report on the role of entertainment in American society with regard to time spent and, um, and dollars and things like that. And uh, in that report, the consumers, American consumers, and again, now we're talking almost two decades, but, but American consumers spent three times as much on entertainment as they did on education. It's pretty shocking when you think about that. The largest demographic group were the 35 to 54-year-olds who make up only, at that time, 42% of the population but spent more than half of the $200 billion that were spent annually on entertainment in this country. And again, I'm sure the number is much bigger than $200 billion now. These entertainment dollars were tracked in four categories. Four categories. I'll just give you this, some background here. So they were, number one, fees and admissions. Fees and admissions. Number two, televisions, radios, and sound equipment. So you can tell it's 20 years old, right? Nobody buys a radio. What is that? <laughs> uh, the third category were pets, toys, and playground equipment. And the fourth category was other entertainment supplies, equipment, and services. The average household in the year 2000 spent $2,835 per year, or 5.6% of their total household expenditures were in the realm of entertainment. And again, as, as one might expect, uh, the numbers and amounts spent varied by demographics, by education levels, and by income. The more you made, the smarter you were, the older you were, the more you spent. Kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, updating one number a little bit, the best I could find, uh, of the largest growth area under the rubric of entertainment has been video games. Video games. So in the year 2016, $24.5 billion spent on video games in this country with the average aged male buyer, males predominantly buying, 36 years old. 36. Yeah, I know, let that settle in. 36. That's like 3, 6. That's like almost 40 years old. Just saying. This is up from 17.5 billion in the year 2010. So that's pretty strong growth. Pretty strong growth. So I don't have more current numbers for you. Maybe somebody's a better researcher than me and could find them. But, but I think the reality of the matter is, is that we spend a lot of money, a lot of money on entertainment. Now, my premise is that entertainment is a dangerous delight. So my question is, why is the growth in entertainment dangerous? 
why is the growth in entertainment dangerous for us as a culture and as the people of God? Well, Neil Postman, some of you know that name, Neil Postman, in his 1995 landmark book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, he warned of the threat to serious discourse and thought brought about by America's rapid adoption of television media as the preeminent means of communication. This book rocked the world, made all kinds of waves. This past week, I happened to see a, an interview with him that was done shortly after the book was released. And in that interview about his book, he made the following comment that just caught my, caught my eye. He said, and I quote him, a thinking is not a performing art. Close quote. Thinking is not a performing art. In other words, it does not make for good television because there's nothing to see. There's nothing to see. We all have come to the place where we disdain the talking head, right? It's boring. It's irrelevant. We're conditioned to the 30-second soundbite. The 30-second soundbite, which minimizes rational thought and is highly successful, by the way, in, in influencing both buying and voting decisions the 30-second soundbite. Entertainment, and especially visual entertainment, by its nature, results in lowering our mental defenses and willingly allowing ourselves to be brought along for the ride. It prioritizes emotions and subtly places within us the, the feelings that would have not otherwise have been there. In other words, that the visual entertainment manipulates us. It manipulates us. Some would say it aims to manipulate us. Others would say it's just the reality of what it is. But in either case, it manipulates us. Even innocent love, quote, unquote, in a romantic story, Ken, as one author noted, creating us subtle desires to have what we have seen. This reality is one of the reasons why romance novels, that's the pulp fiction category, romance novels and the so-called chick flicks, right? They need to be approached with discernment, discernment. And I would add into that category some children's stories and movies as well. These, these romantic stories um, can create within us the, the false idea about love and romance. And they can color a woman's view of marriage and lead to disappointments and discontentments. I want to be a princess. Beloved, something about reading. Reading, serious reading, requires greater mental concentration for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that because it requires us to supply the images from our own imagination. 
with a story. It requires us to delve into our own experiences of life and to, and to draw that up to illustrate whatever it is we're reading. Visual media supplies someone else's images, which allows our minds to partially disengage. How many have read a book and then gone and seen the movie and said the movie wasn't anything like the book? Because reading the book, you you had a certain picture of the story, as it were, that the movie just didn't comport with. With visual media, there are only very limited opportunities to stop, to, to go back, to think about the implications of what we have just seen or heard. Unlike reading a book. Again, how many times have you watched something and, and said, what did he say? You missed the dialogue. Now, I know there are some machines you can pause, you can back up, you know, whatever, but, but we don't do that. I mean, if you had to watch a movie doing that, that would be terrible. So the truth of the matter is, is that we, we don't slow it down and we don't think about it, we don't ponder in the way, again, that the printed word enables us to do. When we read something, we can stop and we could say, hmm, do I really agree with that? Or if that's true, then this must be true. In a movie, we, we don't do that, we're just brought along. And, and, and so doing that, um, and it, 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 I think, enables us, yea, I might even say causes us to, to put our critical thinking skills on hold while we're watching the movie or the TV program. Now, what I'm saying here ought to be obvious. It ought to be obvious that the visual media profoundly influences people, not just like all the other people, like me. And, and the reason it ought, to be, it ought to be obvious to us is because advertisers spend billions of dollars causing us to buy things we don't need with money we don't have. It works. It really does work. Or corporate America would not make the kind of investments they make in visual advertising. Visual entertainment reduces our discernment. And it, it can take us to places where we would not go if we were exercising rational thought. Now, you hang on to that idea, because I'm going to come around to that when I get to talking about movies and the Christian. What about cultural relevance? What about cultural relevance, right? Some in the Christian community, they try to make the case that effective evangelistic efforts require the believer to be culturally relevant, whatever that means culturally relevant. Often, those that are using that kind of terminology, what they mean by that is to be experientially knowledgeable of what their unsaved peers spend their time watching and doing. In other words, in order to have a point of contact, they participate in the same things the culture is participating in, and then 
postulate that that is a bridge to the gospel. Now, I don't have the time to go into all the reasons of that, but I just have to tell you, I'm not persuaded. I am not persuaded. Now, one of the reasons I'm not persuaded is is because our point of contact with a person is the human condition itself. It is the fact that they are made in the image of God, ruined by sin, and redeemable only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our point of contact. Our point of contact is not the latest superhero movie. And if being culturally relevant is essential to to our effective evangelistic witness, then then how come when it comes to entertainment choices, the, the church is virtually indistinguishable from the world? In other words, who is evangelizing whom? How did the early church handle this topic? How did the early church handle entertainment? Our present state of the world, with the ubiquitous reality of electronic media and and entertainment, really only goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. It's not that old. But that does not mean that this problem is only a recent problem. In other words, that the church has not historically had to deal with the question of entertainment and how it relates to the people of God. Wayne Wilson, some of you know Wayne. Wayne Wilson, in his book entitled Worldly Amusements, I will recommend it to you. Wayne Wilson, in his book, He has a chapter where he chronicles a brief history of Christian thought regarding the church and entertainment. It's well worth reading that chapter, if nothing more. He points out an obvious reality, and that is that Christianity was born into the Roman world. And in the Roman world of the first century, theater arts were widely practiced and readily available throughout the empire. You go to, the, to, to Israel and you can find the remains of Roman theaters dotted throughout. Theater was a very big part of Roman culture. Wilson writes that typically Roman plays were, quote, low comedies, vulgar miming, and sensual displays of women. Stars of the stage were extremely well-paid and the center of attention at social affairs. He could be writing about today. He further goes on to say, It should come as no surprise that the early church restricted the theaters along with the games. And so you, you know what I mean by the games, right? So we're, I mean, there could be the Roman Colosseum, but there were many, many of these public sporting events. The early church restricted the theaters along with the games on pain of excommunication. Close the quote. The reasoning was this. This was their reasoning. Now listen to them. 
What a Christian is forbidden from Scripture to participate in, he is also forbidden to entertain himself with. Again, it's really kind of obvious, or should be. Should be. This position of the evangelical church towards entertainment went essentially unchallenged until the 1960s. When in the beginning of the 1960s, Christians began to perceive a much greater freedom in the area of entertainment. Now, it's possible the historic church was wrong. It is possible that the historic church view of all of this stuff was wrong. But before we quickly throw it away and say that we are much more enlightened, we probably ought to slow down at least and give it some serious thought. Wouldn't you agree? One more question. What is the real reason we participate in our culture's entertainment industry? What is the real reason? It's because we love it. It's because we love it. It's a delight. Entertainment is like dessert. It's a pleasurable experience. Pleasure is a gift of God. It is a gift of God that, that like all of his good gifts, it, it has been given to be enjoyed. But it has been given to be enjoyed within the protective fences of the word of God. Now I want you to listen to me. This morning I am not advocating abstinence from entertainment. Okay, let me say it again. This morning I am not advocating abstinence from entertainment. However, I am strongly advocating Christian discernment. You got that? Not abstinence, but Christian discernment, which means that you have to do what? You got to think. And it's hard to think when we have been trained not to think. I was musing in preparation for this morning about the reality that this is the only time during the week for most people where they sit in one place and listen for an extended period of time having to follow rational arguments without the benefit of any visual stimuli. Congratulations. (laughs) Serious. Your presence here week in and week out set you apart from your culture. And it's something we have to train ourselves, to train ourselves to do it. Okay, here's what I have for you this morning. That was the only introduction. Here's what I have. Okay? I have four clear principles. I try to boil this down, make it memorable, understandable. Four clear principles that are designed to help us begin to navigate the maze of entertainment choices. That's what I'm offering you this morning. Four 
clear principles designed to help us navigate the maze of entertainment choices that are presented to us day in and day out. Now, the application of these principles will require wisdom and spiritual sensitivity. I'm not giving you a set of rules, a set of do's and don'ts. These are principles. There are gray areas, but probably not as many as you might think, and maybe not as many as you would like, but there are principles. So here they go. Number one, first clear principle, nudity is off limits. Nudity is off limits. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I think it was three weeks ago we spoke about nudity. Right? What did you talk about in church? We talked about nudity. If you were here for that sermon, you'll remember that when Adam fell, he constituted both himself and Eve and all of their posterity as guilty before God and one another. And in the process, lost the innocence of nudity. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, right? And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is prior to the fall. Following the fall, they clothed themselves first in an attempt to cover their shame, and God clothed them. And God clothing them provides for all time an important theological lesson, and that is that clothing is a reminder of our fallenness. We talked about how perverse we are when that which is designed to be a reminder of our fallenness becomes a source of our pride. But clothing is a perpetual reminder of our fallenness and our need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. From this point forward in the Scriptures, and I demonstrated that to you, from this point forward in the Scriptures, from Genesis 3.21 forward, nudity is shameful outside of marriage. It is a shameful thing outside of marriage. Under this same principle, the Bible teaches some other things, things that I didn't get to in that section. For example, the Bible teaches that the marriage bed is not for spectators. Hebrews chapter 13 And verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The marriage bed is not for spectators. One of the dangerous delights of entertainment is that we will watch on film what we would never, ever view in person. That which would embarrass us in person. We somehow are content to watch on TV, to watch in the movies. The marriage bed is not for spectators. 
Over in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy there about how to, to interact with the various age groups within the church. In verse 2, he speaks about the young women of the church, and he says to them that, Timothy, you're to treat them as sisters in all purity. In other words, a Christian man has a duty to protect the purity of a woman. Gentlemen, we cannot pay money to view a woman sexually degraded for our entertainment and in any credible way say we are trying and committed to upholding the purity of women. It's just not possible. Those actors and actresses are real people made in the image of God. We have no business paying someone to degrade them for our pleasure. Beyond that, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes what we see, not what we touch. Right? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29, to look on a woman, he says. It is a principle of the scriptures. To keep from a person physically, you must keep from them mentally. That's where it begins. Viewing nude images damages your soul and makes you susceptible to acting in ways that are contrary to your Christian loyalties. It damages us. The Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. In other words, it is through the eye gate that all sort of mischief comes and begins. What we see impacts us. Therefore, unequivocally, Entertainment that involves nudity is off limits to the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this argument that, uh, well, this movie, you know, it contains tasteful nudity. Come on. I mean, that's as foolish as arguing for tasteful, tasteful sin. It's not an argument. And it's definitely not an argument a Christian ought to be making. It's off limits, period. It's off limits. Second, crude humor is no laughing matter. Crude humor is no laughing matter. Ephesians chapter 5. And verse 4. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. This ought to be an easy one. It, it, it ought, seriously, it ought to be an easy principle, but I think it's one of the more difficult ones. 
Because what Paul's saying here, essentially, is that we should not laugh at what God condemns. If God doesn't think it's funny, we're not to find it funny. And we certainly should not take the monetary provision that God has provided to us and and then he has supplied to us and squander it by paying people to entertain us with crude humor. And I'll tell you, I think that the children's shows and movies are a realm that is particularly prone to what is being prohibited here. It is called scatological humor. Big word. It is, it is humor that is, that is derived from bodily functions. How about this? It's junior high boys humor. Now you know what I'm talking about. God condemns it. He condemns it. And as our culture continues to descend deeper and deeper into the vortex of sin, it is only going to get worse. If we don't have some firm footings underneath us, then we will find ourselves justifying what once horrified us. Now, this is probably a good place as any to talk about movie ratings. The movie rating system. Okay, fact. PG ratings sell movie tickets. PG, PG PG-13, that's the sweet spot. It is the design of Hollywood to produce movies that fall into that realm because they know that's where the money is. In other words, they make movies intentionally edgy. Have you ever said to yourself, oh, it would be such a good movie. Why did they put that in there? It wasn't necessary for the story. It didn't advance the, the plot line a bit. They put it in there for a simple merchandising reason because that will sell tickets. And it sells tickets, by the way, to the Christian community too because who wants to be square and go to a G-rated movie? By the way, I'm not advocating the movie rating system at all. It's a, it's a self-policing system. So, right, that's putting the fox in charge of the hen house. My advice here with regard to movies is simply this. The same one I gave you with regarding modesty. When in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. Third. Sin has consequences. Right? Nudity is off limits, first principle. Second principle, crude. Humor is no laughing matter. Third, sin has consequences. Verse 6, same chapter. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is Paul's warning. It was a warning to the believers there in Ephesus, and it is a warning to each and every generation of believers. Sin has consequences. 
We need to hear it and we need to heed it. Simply put, in God's economy, sin will be punished. It will be. Therefore, therefore, any entertainment that conveys a message contrary to this is fundamentally at its heart a lie. It is a lie. Shall I remind you of what the deceiver said to Eve? You surely will not die. You surely will not die. And we all know, right? They took and they ate and they died. And they died. This denial of the consequences of sin shows up in a lot of different ways and realms. For example, it might be a film that depicts two young lovers who have acted as though they are married when they're not, and they stroll off into the sunset hand in hand and enjoy a wonderful life together. That's a lie. That's a lie. And that lie has the potential to damage our souls. Well, we don't believe that. If you hear it or see it often enough, you'd be surprised what you might believe. It's a lie. There are many, many films and TV shows and video games that present sinful activity and in the process deny the divine consequences that are associated with it. In effect, they substitute good for evil. They call that which is evil good and good evil. Activities such as stealing, where the hero of the film is a thief, or murder, or vengeance, fornication, lying, greed. These are are themes that are put forward as if these are the noble behaviors. Now, every film, every show does not have to resolve all the injustices by the end. I mean, life doesn't do that, right? We go to the wisdom literature, and that's exactly what we see in the book of of Ecclesiastes. It's not all neatly worked out by the end of the, you know, two-hour film. It's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that that. Films need to represent reality, and that is that they're not to turn sin into a heroic or noble activity. If they do, we have no business. We have no business submitting ourselves to those kinds of lies. Because do not be deceived, verse 6. In other words, we could be deceived in these things, but don't be. Wrath is coming. Wrath is coming. So nudity is off limits. Crude humor is no laughing matter. Sin has consequences. And fourth, fourth, 
violence is a two-edged sword. Violence is a two-edged sword. Remind you of the sixth commandment, right, from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Now, I think when it comes to violence, this of the principles is probably the most difficult to apply. This one's probably the most difficult. It's a fact, by the way, that violence sells. All the biggest box office receipts come in for violent movies. Our culture loves violence, we export violence. It's a national industry. The Proverbs warn about falling in with evil men, those whose regular diet is brutality. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 17, for, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. In other words, it's their, it's their daily fare. Not long after Cain slays his brother, right, in Genesis chapter 4, that we come to what is known as the the song of the bow, seven generations from Adam in Lamech, who brags about killing a boy. First rap song, by the way. Check it out. We come to violence. Let me let me try to provide some context. I say it's a two-edged sword. I chose that intentionally because there's not a strict prohibition against violence. It's obvious if you just think about it. God commands violence in certain circumstances. You read the scriptures, God commands violence in certain circumstances, such as the judgment of the Canaanites, such as capital punishment, such as some of Israel's wars, and then the the violent judgment that surrounds the return of the Prince of Peace. The point to observe, though, is that in all of these circumstances, the the violence was an act of judgment upon sin and sinners. That's the important thing to hang on to. God does command violence in certain circumstances, and he commands violence as as a divine judgment upon sin and sinners. In other words, it's a holy violence that is designed to either subdue or destroy sin. That's important to note. At the same time, God also prohibits the murder of another person. Right? The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. God prohibits the murder of another person. That is to take their life without divine permission. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. 
because they are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. God commands violence. God prohibits murder. One more. The human body is holy. Right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. The human body is holy. That has been, by the way, the understanding of the Jewish people and of the Christian people for millennia. The human body is holy. And as such, it should not be subjected to violence for the sake of entertainment. So hang on to these. God commands violence in certain circumstances. God prohibits murder. The human body is holy and should not be subjected to violence for the purpose of entertainment. Whenever the Bible presents violence, and there's a lot of violence in the Bible... Whenever it presents violence, it never makes it an object of entertainment. Never. It always presents it in a context of sin and its consequences. That's important. That's important. So keeping that in mind, let me make a few statements here when it comes to violence and entertainment. I would say that violence must not be the focus of the plot. Violence should not be the focus of the plot of whatever it is that we are entertaining ourselves with. Violence should not be the purpose of the game that we are either playing or Observing. Violence must not be used as a means to thrill or arouse ungodly feelings in the viewer. All right, I can hear the questions. Right? What about war movies? What about them? What about fantasy violence? What about sporting events? Do you know recently the state of Wyoming made bare knuckle fighting legal? Interesting, huh? Do you know that animal fighting used to be considered common entertainment? I know, we're horrified by such things, right? Righteous man has concern for the life of his beast, by the way. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. Animal fighting was never permissible. But there was a time in the Christian West when animal fighting was a source of entertainment. 
All right, here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to land the airplane. I am going to address the questions that I've just raised and any others that you might have in your mind and draw to a conclusion this entire topic with a word of personal testimony. You ready? My life has never been diminished. My life has never been diminished by any movie I failed to see, any television program of which I am unaware, or any computer game that I have not participated in. And I doubt yours would be either. Pray, and the Lord will give you wisdom in these things. For he is your judge, not me. Father, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ went to a bloody, violent death to slay sin on our behalf. Thank you that he endured the cruel torment of man. without so much as an objection. And thank you, our Father, that on the third day he rose from the dead and shattered the power of sin and the bonds of the grave. And he freely offers that resurrection life to all who will receive him by faith. Father, thank you that you have opened our eyes to this most profound reality. Help us, our Father, to love Christ more. For in loving him more, we will love ourselves less. We ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.